Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and this episode of the podcast is being brought to you out of my mobile recording studio, otherwise known as my adventure van, whose proper name is Mobile Base Camp. I'm sitting here in Truckee, California, just in advance of the 2022 Western States 100, where I'm ready to support a number of athletes that we've got in the race. But that is neither here nor there, because on the podcast today, we are talking with Borgia Martinez Gonzalez, who is just finishing up his PhD work at the University of Kent. And it is all about how athletes sleep in races that are longer than 100 miles. And in particular, he followed a group of athletes around the spine race and saw what they actually did from a practical perspective in terms of how much and when did they actually sleep. And I wanted to pick Borgia's brain on how we can use this information coupled with what we know about sleep restriction and sleep deprivation to design strategies for athletes that are participating in races like the Tour de Giant or the Triple Crown of 200s or even the Cocodona 250 next year. So for any of you athletes that are considering those races, listen up because I think one of the things that you will find very valuable is that you really do have to individualize your sleep strategy depending upon the duration that you expect your race to take. And I am not going to spoil it any more than that, so I'm going to get right out of the way. Here is my conversation with Borgia Martinez-Gonzalez all about when and how much to sleep during ultramarathons. I want to know, just so the listeners can kind of get to know you a little bit more, is how did you get involved in this in the first place? Like what was, what's the origin story behind you trying to, trying to figure all this stuff out? The, the short answer I said by chance is like, I, I do usually doing like explaining your own experience for students, because usually here in Italy, I also teach uh, physiology for master students, like more lab based, like VO2 max, lactate, efficiency, strength and conditioning. I, I'm a lab guy in that sense. And um, usually I recall my experience because I was on the other side not long time ago. And I, what I found also during my career was like, I was not motivated. I was, I did sports science. I did a degree in sports science by chance. I was, it was not my plan. I didn't know sports science. And over the time it's like, universities are different all around the world. Also, the person have different maturity levels. I went through the university, was not the best student. I was good enough to pass, to, to just like do what is required. And then after the degree, I, well, before the degree, I, I was teaching like sports to kids. Like in Spain, it's like kind of the role of, let's say, like a sports instructor that you go to the schools after the classes. Yeah. And then... Um, over the time, I realized that all that experience I had helped me to be where I am right now. Because when I started my degree, I said, okay, I want to be the strength and conditioning coach of Real Madrid in football. I used to play football. When I finished my degree, I hate football. It's like, I don't like the business. <laughs> it was like, I was not following football at all. And then uh, I, I, it was not, I was not a researcher. My contact with research, I always do the same. It's like, I saw like a VO2 max once in five years of my degree. 
like in, in the physiology lab once. It's like when I finished my degree, I was coaching triathlon and, and that was probably one of the changing points or the tipping points is like, oh, hold on a minute. I'm interested in this. I'm motivated to do research. So what, what are my chances? I took, I had some money saved and said, okay, fair, I mean, if we tell the truth, it's like I did one year in the US in Southeast States, um, Southeast State Missouri University. I was a exchange student for one year and that was uh, the dream for us, for someone coming from sports. It's like in the US, everything is bigger, everything is better in terms of sports. And I was hooked by that. It's like, I want to go back to the US and do my master's here. But my friends in Europe said, why don't you go to the UK and do the master's? It's close to home. So I visit them in, in, actually in Scotland and in Edinburgh. And I saw the facilities and I said, look, maybe it's a good idea instead of going to the US to stay close to Spain, be to the, going to the UK to do the master's. So by chance, and I have to say that when I applied for my master's, Kent was not my first option. I was accepted in Edinburgh first. But then, I don't know, it was like the, on the following day, I got the letter from Kent and, and it makes a bit more sense to me. And I ended up in Kent. But even like when I did the, my plan was, I was working with paratriathletes. So I wanted to do something researching paratriathlon or, or Paralympic Games. I arrived in Kent and they didn't have any module about it. So I was lost, completely lost. So what I did in November when I had to choose my supervisor for the master's thesis, I said, okay, let's go to the website and see who's the director of research. <laughs> and I checked and said, oh, this this Italian professor, Samuel Marcora. So I booked an appointment with him, knock on his door. I introduced myself. He probably catch up my Spanish accent. I said, ah, are you Spanish? Okay, let's go have a coffee. We had a coffee. We chat about life, about physiology and said, Look, I'm very busy, but maybe I can supervise your your master's thesis if you bring me like an interesting proposal. And here I am, like seven years That's later. That's hilarious. That's hilarious. So, well, and it is figure original question. Sorry, how did I end up in ultra and sleep <laughs> by chance? Yeah. One day well, I, I was in the hallway and Samuel said, "Oh, I got this uh, interesting PhD proposal. Have a look at it." I look at it and always like. Uh, like the mountains, is like I used before I did the masters. I, I was doing like sports instructor, like in a camp during the summers in the mountains, in the well, in the middle of Spain, let's say. So I was doing mountain biking, climbing, hiking, and I was always in love with the mountains. When I when I saw the topic, I said, "This is a nice way to go back to what I really love." It's like I love yeah. to be in the mountains. Well, as you know, what I was just going to say, as you know, Kent is killing it. I mean, you guys are producing such great research out of there uh, over the last several years that I, I can't even imagine the brain trust that has gone through Sam's department and Sam's lab. And you're, you're a big part of that. So I want to kind of narrow this down to what you were specifically studying dur uh, uh, during your PhD work. And you already alluded to... Um, you already alluded to the opportunity, but I want to kind of turn the turn turn the floor over to you. What was the construct of the uh, of the actual research design, and then I want to discuss the main findings from it, and then use this coaching hat that you have to extrapolate that to how we can actually 
you, how we could actually use that information in, in an ultra marathon setup. So describe to the users or to the listeners what you were actually looking at during your PhD work and, 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 and what the results looked like. The main idea was, okay, uh, we know, I mean, in my mind, I think what uh, the, the, the starting point was this paper about ultra, ultra trail du Mont Blanc, where they analyzed the sleep and they found that the less you sleep, the better your race performance is. And that probably ring a bell, rang a bell in, in, in Samuel's mind and said, okay, but what happens in longer events? So yeah. the main, main point that he made to me, because he knows me, it's like, and probably you as well, it's like, I jump from one topic to the next one. I need like to have some kind of pathway. And he said, okay. Just focus, Let's focus exactly. here. <laughs> he said, look for something longer than 100 miles. I'm not interested because the research has been done. It's like, we need something novel. So the first thing I had to do was to look for races not very far away where we can do research. And the, the, the first question was like, okay, how do they sleep during these events? Because that was also like an interesting point for me as a researcher, because you are educated from the lab to the field. But this, from the first minute, it was completely upside down. It's like, no, I got the feeling that first I should go to the field, observe how do yeah. they sleep, and then see what we can do. So that's the, that's, that's the start of, of, of the first study we did. We did we ran a couple of field studies in um, the spine race in December. In, no, sorry, in January, which is a, an ultra a winter ultra marathon uh, that goes uh, through the Pennine Way in the in the UK and it ends in the Scottish at the Scottish borders. It's brutal because it's, uh, the, you can imagine the weather conditions. Yeah. And, um, we were lucky because we had these uh, devices, which are like a watch, but they are medical grade watches where you can accurately measure sleep and sleep efficiency. So these are watches that are coming from a sleep unit. And um, we had the opportunity to, to get them. And we were crazy enough to think that we can give those to the athletes and recover them in Scotland and then see if, if we've got the data. Apart from that, uh, from because I think I'm going through that study now. Um, first, logistically speaking, it was a challenge because so, you have- So you're, you're, using, you're using the spine race yeah. to look at what at how athletes are trying, what athletes are doing from a sleep perspective in in actual reality and then you're using you're using that to like come up with how to actually combat that or suggestions to actually like combat that based on the results essentially the idea was to study how athletes sleep during the spine race it's like how many hours how's the sleep quality when do they sleep how many times do they sleep to put this into context for the listeners, because I've, I've got primarily a U.S. audience, the spine race is really hard. Can describe what, like how long it was taking most of the people that you were studying? 
the cutoff time, if I remember well, is seven days. It's 168 hours. And the spine is uh, 268 miles, if I remember well. It's around 520 kilometers. Right. I can check, uh, but it's, um, it's a one-week race. It's like most of the... I think the, the, the record is around 86 hours, something like okay. that. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to, I just wanted to paint the picture to the listeners that it's several, that it's several days, right? You can't just push through yeah. without sleep and it's nonstop. Exactly. It's non-stop. So can you broadly describe the strategies that people were deploying in terms of when they were sleeping, how much they were sleeping, and then the quality of the sleep that they were getting? And then we can kind of backtrack that to who is performing better. So the first thing um, was, uh, I would say most of the people, they finished in a five, in a range of four to six days. Okay. Like yep. we had some good performance, not, not top performance, and we had some of the last finishers. Yeah. Um, what we found is that the first night, nobody sleeps. Yeah, and I'm trying to because I don't want to sound like oh this is um, science and the first thing let's keep in mind that it was observational so I was there and usually it was challenging to be there because you you know how ultras they start very close and then over time people will spread <laughs> out and people you will have people hundred yeah, miles yeah three days apart <laughs> exactly and, and and that was that was a struggling. The, the first I remember the first the first edition and I was like wow like it's challenging because also for us it, it was something new so I was on my own I I'm, I was lucky that I had the volunteers and I could like ask for help but it was my job on my own for one week not sleeping some days like traveling you're the almost a participant at that point yeah okay, so, so I would so that- joke with the participants it's like Sometimes uh, I get less sleep than you guys because I need to be always uh, on on the road. The first night, okay, so, only a few so ob- of them had some sleep. Okay, so observation number one is very few people sleep on the first night. Yeah, which okay so- leads to the next question: is like why? What's, why is the right. reason? And the good part of being during the races is not very scientific, or, or let's say top scientific options, but. You speak to them. It's like, okay, why, why, why you don't stop on the first checkpoint to sleep? And most of them, they said, look, the first checkpoint, the first night, is is a hell. It's a mess. It's chaos. Why? Because you've got people that they just joined the race, mm. thinking they could finish. They, it's so noisy. It's, it's it's so chaotic that people just prefer to carry on. Also, excitement, first night. It's more pragmatic, right? It's more pragmatic yeah. and based around the... Yeah, I mean, Tour de Jant is kind of the same way, where you have some of the refugios that people want to sleep in that are very conducive to it, and then other ones are just not, because they're small, they're chaotic, you know, it's... So, so anyway, it's the same deal. So the, so the why behind that is more pragmatic versus performance-based. I would say that's one of the questions that we we still have to answer and we would like to answer. I would like to be positive and say in the next few years, it's like, what is better to not sleep the first night or to have some sleep and then try to sleep 
Samuele call it like a sleep pacing. It's like, what is the yeah. best sleep pacing strategy? I had some chats with some uh, athletes that they did all the races. They also did ultra triathlons. And I got like, which is interesting for us, is like, I never got the same answer. And some of them, they said, yeah. you know, I did the same ultra twice. The first night I didn't sleep. The second night I catch maybe half an hour, one hour. And I was feeling completely different. But with, with the results we had, is, with the, the results we had is like the first time the participants had some sleep was after 24 hours at least. I think it was 25.7 hours. That was the first me- the first message. So okay, so that's in the in in your research, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're going through the first night without sleep. They're yeah. getting their first sleep after about twenty five hours, twenty six hours. Yeah. So and we consider long- that the spine the spine. Sorry to interrupt you. The spine starts at seven a.m. It means that they catch some sleep on the following morning. Yeah. And how long was that sleep for? The first night, it, it, actually, I had to look at it because I no, don't have it like in my mind. But which is probably the, the most uh, the most important part for your listeners is like, okay, how many hours of, of a sleep shall I get on the first point? I can give you the total times because I cannot. I need to go in that case. I need to go through my thesis. Sorry, I didn't have like any outline where I could check that quickly but um in total they had yeah 24.6 was the hours before the first sleep bout let's say and uh so they as an average they sleep 11 hours in six episodes so it's less than two hours like okay. then whenever probably in the next few months this is published and is available, you can find exactly how much time they slept per sleep bout. Because that's one of the other things, is like it's a group of people, so it doesn't mean that everybody went to bed after twenty-four hours. Like some of them they catch some sleep after thirty-six hours. So he, this is what I this is kind of what I find interesting. And I think you're starting to see this in the field after that first bout of sleep. Did you find that most of their strategies diverged in terms of when they were taking their next sleep and for how long for, or was it rather, rather homogenous in the group? I would say it's not going to be a surprise, but my personal opinion is you plan your sleep based on the checkpoints and your speed. It's like you have, you already had a plan. And it's like, obviously, in theory, you may have more than one plan because things can go wrong and then you may have to change everything. And um, it's quite important for people that are participating for the first time because people, and we had people that it was maybe the fifth or the sixth time that they were trying it. You have that feedback, which is crucial. And that's why... I was surprised because I was not expecting that at all coming from my background that the longest race I did was a marathon and you never trained. You never had like a longer run <laughs> covering a marathon while these guys 
they do they do recognition during maybe the summer and they do the the legs and I was wondering why why do you want to put yourself through this and then I realized that's actually a smart idea because then you've got the feedback okay things will change because of sleep deprivation because it's winter snow and everything but having that feedback and maybe remember that oh after this uh, town there is a very nice uh, village on the left that may help you going back to sleep I think it's the it's a very similar construction it's like you want to sleep always inside because it's winter and it's the UK. So yeah. doing some uh, sleep outside is, is challenging. I know I've got funny stories and I can, like, you can imagine people trying to sleep anywhere that is not quite cold and trying to find any place to sleep. I think it's part of the rules that you cannot go inside a house, but maybe you can yeah, stay yeah. outside. But um, most of the people, they, they, they plan to sleep at the checkpoints. Okay. Um, let's let's kind of move this into the more practical piece of it, because I want to draw on the, the work that you not only did during your PhD uh, thesis, but also the work that your lab is doing as a whole. And for the listeners, I had a podcast just recently with one of your uh uh, with one of your colleagues, uh, Chiara, on the same uh, on the same topic, when you're advising people that are going through these multi-day events, and let's take the spine race out of it, since it's so since it's mainly bordered by the pragmatic aspects of you have to sleep during the checkpoints and it's winter and you can't take trail naps and things like that. Is there a general construction that you can describe that you would advise athletes to do that are participating in races that are going to take four, five, six, seven days in terms of when they should um, when they should take their sleep and for how long for? Is there any way that you could provide just like 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 a basic umbrella for what that advice would look like? I think you're going to kill me because for that. I prefer to answer with Tordes Jans, which is another. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, I, I can also answer for the spine. But for Tordes Jans, the main reason why I mention it is because we did some um, consultancy for two. So well, two um, general. I don't know actually the, the military rank they, they actually hold, but at that time they were not soldiers, and we got in. They, they got in touch with us because they want to finish Tordes Jans. And we took it as a pilot study because yeah. we knew, logistically speaking, how hard was the spine. And we had the opportunity to do the same in Tordes Jans. So we took this as a challenge and we spent a couple of months like monitoring training, testing these two, these two persons. One was five kilometers far away to finish Tordes Jans when he got an injury and he couldn't finish. And the other one was completely new to ultra. The longest distance he covered was a half marathon. <laughs> so as I think uh, also the listeners can get an idea that we have yeah. challenges. And um, what we did was to read the literature and we found that most of the ultra endurance runners they are doing something called sleep extension or sleep banking. Yeah which is, in simple words, is you try to sleep as much as possible before the event. 
put it in this way, it's like the cargo loading is like more or less the same concept. It's like you try to catch some sleep. So that first night in uh, brackets, it's easier because you had enough sleep. If tomorrow I have to go and do like uh, Mont Blanc, and yesterday I slept four hours, the chances that I will struggle at night are very high. So that was the first advice. And it's not, it, it, it's not for sure no surprise for your listeners. It's like before the event, try to sleep as much as possible. Maybe also the day before, take it easy. But we know that is that's not easy. I'm the first one, like pre-competition anxiety is a thing. So this is not a... Um, a rule of thumb is like you need to really, really, really work through, okay, I want to sleep as much as possible, but I really have to sleep. I cannot be in bed, uh, you know, watching Netflix or something. That's not, that's, it's going to help you to relax, but it's not going to improve your sleep. So that was the first advice they gave, you gave them. From a, from a practical perspective, I've used that sleep banking protocol. And what I do is, is I just do it for a week and say, stay in bed for 10 hours for a week before the race every single night you know, for one week before the event and then just call it good. I realize that there are like practical things around that. People can't do that from a, you know, just from a time, from a timing perspective or whatever, but we just try to get it as close as possible. So that that's intervention number one, right? Sleep banking. And yeah. I, I think that's well studied in the literature. I'll link up a couple of uh, papers in the show notes that people can check out. Let's move on to the event itself. So then, how, uh, how are you advising people for both sleep and also the countermeasures like caffeine and things like that during the event itself? I had to say that actually the athletes gave us the idea because uh, this military environment, they are top in logistics. They had everything uh-huh. planned, average speed, <laughs> when, do I, when am I going to uh, arrive to this place? Uh, and that for me was like, oh, Actually, that's a good idea. And I saw that also during the spine, you know, at the checkpoints when I saw people with a checklist in their backpacks and say, oh, I need this, this, this and that, or that's my routine. I realized that one of the crucial parts of Ultra is logistics. And actually, I love logistics in in that sense. It's like I I prefer to have things in, in, in a right order also. I call it like I'm lazy. I prefer to have something I can check and I don't need to think because if I think it's very likely I will do a mistake. So we started planning based on their actual plan. And we said, okay, the first night we're not going to sleep. And then that was the second time where I heard that the first night they don't sleep because the checkpoint is not that far away. The first checkpoint, if I remember well, in, in Tortellans is 50K away. Or yes. let's say in a range of 50 to 100. So what I took from the experience of one of the athletes was like, this point is a chaos. It's like there is plenty of people. Even if you want to sleep, you cannot sleep. So the best strategy is to carry on. And just to introduce caffeine now into the equation, that's when we started, okay, then what do we do when we don't want to sleep? Or let's put it in this way. What do we take when we want to stay awake to take caffeine? And we started doing research on caffeine because at the same time is um, something we know People use it during competition, but there is not a lot of evidence, especially in ultra, because, and that was one of the limitations of my observational study in the spine, is how do you track the amount of caffeine an athlete takes during a one-week event? Yeah, it's tricky. 
because it's coming from so many sources. Yeah. But let, let's put the consultancy hat back on, right? And mm-hmm. we can peel apart the caffeine piece. How how much is viewer? So I've done Tour de Jantz before, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a 96 hour finisher or something like that. Um, would you advise me or somebody similar to me to go through the first night without sleep? And then if I'm going to take caffeine to stay awake, how, how much, cause that's what the listeners kind of want to know. Like how much do they need to take and, and what's the timing of that look like? Yeah. I would say that if we have the answer for that, it would be commercial in the sense of <laughs> yeah, that, that's I a know. tricky point. And that's why yeah, we, yeah. I'm, I'm very careful with my words because I yeah, cannot, yeah. I cannot risk someone saying, Oh, this person in Jason's podcast said that if I take 300 milligrams of caffeine, I can go. First of all, we, we do it based on your body mass, yeah. which is common sense. It's like, if I am 70 and you are 90, we, we probably need different doses. Um, what we did was, uh, for the pilot, we took a, a very pragmatic approach, which is like I consider caffeine like a drug, which means that you need different doses over time. So we went through the literature and all the literature in caffeine and sleep deprivation, as you mentioned in, in, in the previous podcast with Chiara, uh, the only population that is crazy enough to volunteer for these kind of uh, experiments are soldiers. So we've got research done in the US with soldiers that they were taking uh, every four hours, 200 milligrams of caffeine. So, but now let's put the physiology or let's put the lab stuff into it. It's like, we know from from research and systematic reviews and, you know, that you have already explained to the audience that a systematic review is a review of a lot of experiments. So it's like a nice uh, recap of what's what has been published in the literature, in the scientific literature. We know that the, the, the dose to have like an, a beneficial effect of caffeine on, on, on endurance performance is between three milligrams and six milligrams of caffeine per kilo of body mass. So if we do like a quick math, it's like if I am 70 kilos, I need at least 210 milligrams. And that's when people start like getting a bit, um, start asking a lot of questions like, okay, but how can I do that with coffee or, or, or with uh, energetic drinks? And I said, look, just go to the pills because in the pills, you know exactly. You know how much. Yeah. With the coffee, it's uh, it depends on so many variables, the type of uh, coffee grounds, the method you use to brew coffee. So we started like that. We said, okay, here are these uh, pills at night after lunch. Oh, sorry, at night, in that case, the first night is like whenever, probably after 9 p.m. or 10, just have it. But take into account that caffeine takes up to one hour. I would say 40, the literature says 45 to one hour. I don't want to make things very, very complicated because then here is when I am, where I introduce that we don't have the same sensitivity to caffeine. It's based on, on genetics. So maybe you and me have a different gene to metabolize caffeine, or, or in this case, like a different, let's say, it's like the plate of your car. It's like we have different numbers, and maybe my number has 
more chances to metabolize caffeine very slowly, which means that I will not feel any effect up to the third hour. While in your case, if you are very fast metabolizer, maybe you feel it after 45 minutes and then you start having some benefit. But here, here's always the here's always the tricky thing in these long ones is that we can you're right we can go through the literature and we can kind of pin down the ergogenic dose as anywhere between three and six milligrams per kilogram, but that's in one shot, yeah. right? So that's taking a hit of caffeine sixty minutes before you're going to do a. 40 kilometer cycling time trial or a marathon or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those dose response, those dose responses are fairly well studied. But when you're saying, Hey, I want you to take this every four hours or every eight hours or every 12 hours or at 9 PM, like you were just uh, mm-hmm. suggesting, that's when everything gets muddy and you, you kind of don't, you, you don't know what the, if the metabolism is any different at that point, and you also don't know if the effect is any different at that point. So I'm, I'm once again, I'm trying to like, I, I know, I know you, I know you folks in academics don't, don't like to like get pinned down on answers where you can't trace it back to research a lot, but is it, is it something where you would recommend a regular dosing of caffeine to stay awake or would you abstain from it at a certain point because you know you're going to have to sleep at a certain point during the race very very good point so our approach was okay take uh, this amount of caffeine maybe with food or after having some food every now and then during the day but then the main issue is when you feel sleepy at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., I don't think you will be able to fight that with a pill of caffeine. And then we had our second option for the night. We are still on the first night, but I think this yeah, is yeah, going to yeah. be very useful. What we find or we found was the chewing gums with caffeine. Because it, it goes through completely a different it's immediate, system. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So we said, look, here is your caffeine pill. But we know it that it may not be enough. So during the night, because the, the goal is to arrive awake to the next morning, let's say, in, in the best possible condition, because let's remember that these guys are running or walking or we said, look, if by any chance you are feeling sleepy, here are the caffeine chewing gums. Just put you in your mouth. That's probably 100 milligrams. And um, top up as much as you can. It's like, obviously, with two chewing gums, uh, when you feel sleepy, in less than 15 minutes, you feel awake. But the effects are shorter than the pill. That was the first night. It's like, okay, second day, arrive to the checkpoint, and then... Uh, most of the most of the people, it's a big achievement. You have survived to the first night with no sleep. You arrive to the checkpoint, and uh, it's up to you. It's like some of them, they may feel the effects of caffeine because they took another two chewing gums at 4 a.m. and then they at the end the half life of caffeine is six to seven hours. So they may arrive in the morning feeling quite energetic. So the the, the advice is like carry on. It's like obviously nutrition goes first. 
cover your nutritional needs and then keep going. But that's the good, that, that, that's, I'm very happy that you made that point. It's like, okay, but when do I stop if I need to sleep? Yeah. So if my yeah. plan was to go to sleep at 7 a.m. and I just had a cup of coffee with a, a breakfast, yeah. I'm not going to be able to sleep. So the advice we gave to them was like, at least two to four hours before your plan is sleep, don't take caffeine and just. So you so the withdrawal period or the abs the uh, the yeah. period of of abstinence that you need is or that you're recommending is two to four hours. At that point, because we had no knowledge at all, we said, yeah. okay, try to not take caffeine before going to bed. Like if you can avoid having chewing gums at night four hours before your plan to sleep, uh, do it. I will send you a link because then that's again back to research. I found um, a website where you can plot, and it's based on on um, reaction time, which is one of the tests that we use to to measure cognition or, or reaction time in this case, and you can plot. So there is, there is plenty of research done in uh, normal sleep and sleep deprivation up to several days. And they were literally measuring reaction time of people. Yeah. And then you can put the amount of sleep you get or you are planning to get and the amount of caffeine you are planning to take. And it will also like uh, there is the circadian rhythms as the same as the sleep. So you've got like mainly two points of sleep need like at night and after lunch usually and with this app you can in a way play with the curve and match it with your strategy for for ultra in a, in my case i took the risk and, and we took the risk of using this i said okay if this person is not going to sleep for 36 hours how is the curve going to look like when is he going to decline in terms of cognition? Because that's the point where we want to top up with caffeine. Yeah. And we play, but it was, uh, for your listeners, short story, trial and error in, in this particular pilot. Short story, what? Sorry. So the, short, the, the, the short story is like, we, for this pilot with these two athletes, we just did our best and it was a bit of trial and error. It's like, okay, yeah. let's see if this works. And then we can think why it's working or why it's not working. But that website, that tool, at least gave me some scientific evidence to say, okay, you may have to take 200 milligrams every eight hours because that's when you have the declining cognitive performance. And that's normally 2 to 4 a.m. If you have a normal but, rate. Yeah, exactly. If you have like classic eight hours of sleep, but uh, during ultra, you are not having that. So you are yeah. having maybe a couple of hours uh, or four hours on the second night. Okay, so let's move. Let's kind of let's continue this advice train, right? So you're going through the first night without sleep. You're timing your caffeine every four hours. What happens night two, night three, night four, night five in terms of what you would advise a normal person to, to either get or forego sleep in terms of dose and timing? I would say it depends on your speed and the cutoff times of the race. Because, you know, sometimes uh, I remember in this, in this pilot, in the last checkpoint in Tordes Jans, 
I'm trying to remember. It was the last o point. Oh yes, yeah, oh yes. I got I got really mad with one of the participants because I said, "No, you cannot sleep for hours. You must. <laughs> You've got to go." <laughs> exactly. It's like, and because because the, um, I think after maybe it was the the previous one, I remember there is a 10k uphill section, yeah. and based on my experience with uh, looking at the numbers of this person, I said, he's not going to be able to be fast enough for the next checkpoint. So I rather put him uphill with two hours of sleep, knowing that he has the caffeine chewing gums up as the backup option than having some good sleep and then uh, realize that he's not going to make it. And after the race, both the, 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 the happy ending here is like both finished. So, Mission accomplished. We make two people to finish Tordes Jans. But yeah. I remember I was, um, yeah, I was in bed. Actually, I was in Cormayor because we were based there. And I couldn't sleep because it's my work. And I was like, okay, I'm going to check in the GPS with this person. And he was going so fast uphill that they have to call the logistics and say, is the GPS okay? Because I don't think he can go that fast. And then when he finished, he told me, you know, I was so mad at you because I couldn't get so sleep. And I said, I'm going to go as fast as I can and then catch up some power nap or something um, in the morning. <laughs> okay, but let's design this for performance, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of people that'll do Tour de Jant or there's a series of 200 milers here in the U.S., that they they, they kind of know that they can finish comfortably under the cutoffs, you know, 10 hours yeah. to a day under the cutoff, but they want to design a sleep schedule from an ergogenic perspective so that they can kind of like maximize their performance. And what I'm trying to, what, what I'm trying to pull out of you through your observation and looking through the research is, is there a logical pattern of I'm going to sleep this much during this type of night that an athlete can deploy during those events, considering that, you know, they've got the opportunity to do it and there's no logistical constraints like the spine race and things like that. Like, is there, is there a generalized pattern or is it something where literally they just have to sleep when they're tired and push on when they need to? Short answer. Most of the people will arrive at the checkpoint um, late at night. And by late, I mean like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., or early in the morning. And what I observe in the spine and, and also in Torres Jans is like, they try to catch some sleep on the second, third night. And then there is a point where they need to sleep more. Like they move from yeah. 90 minutes, two hours to, because we are considering so it's one week. Yeah. So my biggest advice is if your plan is, uh, everybody's plan is, it, it, then it depends where the, the race is, but. Uh, humans, we sleep at night, we function during the day. We can extend our wakefulness until late at night. But um, if you were not too crazy with caffeine during the night, I think if you arrive at the checkpoint at 2, 4 a.m., you grab some food, you go to sleep, and then after two hours, it, 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 again, based on your race strategies, because some of them, they they are fast enough to get maybe three to four yeah. hours of sleep every night. And that's, I would say that's not too bad. That's one of my, um, yeah. all the things I have to do is like, I want to start doing ultra because I need to apply what I learned. Also, I need to perceive 
what the participants uh, perceive. But what you're what you're alluding what you're alluding to a little bit is this is this phenomenon that I don't think we we don't really know all that much about, and maybe you can illuminate some of this for me. There's only so much of a sleep deficit you can build up before you have to start erasing that deficit. And the way that that works out in the races is, okay, I'm going to plan on taking 45-minute naps or two-hour naps or whatever for day one, two, three, and four. And then at a certain point, you have to start erasing this huge deficit that you've already built up. When athletes are planning this out for themselves or even for my own, you know, selfish reasons, I'm planning it out for athletes. I've always had a hard time figuring out exactly what that deficit is before, before it reaches kind of a critical mass and you have to start building it back up. Is there anything that you know that you observe or that we can like look in the research to actually point to what that what that maximum amount of deficit is before you actually have to, before you're kind of forced to essentially build it back up? Short answer from a scientific point, we don't know. Uh, A bit longer answer is from the spine, what I observed was like after, so one of the other results we got was like at some point, in this case, I think it was uh, more than half way all the athletes have to sleep more and more frequently. And uh, that's when also fatigue plays a role. It's like, actually, is it the sleep deficit or is it just like fatigue building up that just you require to rest and and to recover? So I don't have an answer. I would like to say, yeah, after three days of sleeping for hours, that's the tipping point where you have to get more sleep. What I can tell is from the spine, over time, they had to sleep more, and that's when probably most of the athletes had to get some sleep during the night somewhere, like for half an hour or 45 minutes. Yeah. Some of them on some of them will do that on purpose. Some of them they will just say, because part of my research was at every checkpoint, I check every single participant and I ask them. Did you get some sleep? We had a questionnaire, like a sleep diary, yeah, yeah. and because I want to check that with the watch, just as a as a cross check, let's say. And some of them they were telling me, you know what? I cannot remember, but I'm pretty sure from three to four a.m. I said uh, I I sat down in the middle of nowhere and I fall asleep. <laughs> um, I mean, this always this this brings up a really interesting point here is that. I do think the strategies when you're when you're laying them out on paper are going to be different for different ends of the spectrum. So if you have a 200 mile race, you can have people finish in 50 or 60 hours or you can have them finish in six days. And depending upon where they are on that spectrum, that patterning of when to sleep and how much to sleep can vary a great extent because on the short end of the spectrum, you can put up with a lot of sleep restriction and sleep deprivation for that short period of time, but you can't do it. You can't extend that for too long before you have to pass out on a rock as your, you know, as your, as your participant mentioned. 
so I, I don't know. There's not a, there's not a question in that other, other than to say as people are at home or listening to this and kind of thinking about it, be wary of where you're getting the advice from, because it, it likely there's my caveat. It likely your, your sleep patterning should match the actual pacing that you anticipate during the race in terms of how long do you think it's going to take you? Yeah, you nailed it. That's the that's the advice. If I have to give an advice to someone, is that one. We've got a. I'm trying to remember. I think it was the summer edition of the Spine. We've got the male winner. That probably he got 90 minutes of sleep on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. We know also from Torres Jans that the, the winners, the only sleep they will get, probably is at the checkpoints, and they didn't even realize. You know, they were just like having like a power nap or something but that that's that's the take-home message is like one size does not fit all it's like it's the same principle of training it's like oh i must do this amount of miles per week uh, to finish an ultra marathon it's like well depending on what your fitness level your commitment and everything i would say with the sleep what you said is what i would actually said is like plan according to your race strategy yeah. And th- this is why I think the training becomes so important because if you can, if you're more fit and you could move faster down the course, you just have more bandwidth to sleep at the aid stations. If, fin- if finishing is your goal, or if you have a particular time goal, the fitness matters a whole lot. And I always hear athletes that are trying to like make up for time by not sleeping. And you always give it back because you can't locomote as fast down the trail when you're you know, when you're in such a sleep de- sleep deprived state. <laughs> That's um, because one of the things I learned also was uh, you should have several plans. And that's also part of my personality. When I was with the soldiers, I said, what is your plan B? Oh, we don't have a plan B. You're we just commit B. to this. It's like, no, no, you should have a plan B, plan C, plan D. I remember it was so funny because I looked like a football, American football coach. I got my book and I said, okay, this athlete, is he following plan A or plan B based on the time? Because you must be prepared. Yeah. It's a one-week race. It's not a marathon where you said, oh, you know what? I'm not feeling well after half marathon. Let's slow down. It's like, no. If you slow down during a one-week ultra, the chances that you will not finish are very high. So I need to plan in advance and, and maybe said, you know what? Let's, instead of four hours, let's try to sleep three hours 30. And before I forgot, I would like to mention something that is not related to sleep, but it may help someone. It's about the logistics. It's about the time you spend at the checkpoint. And okay, maybe I'm over optimistic and think in a Formula One. It's like it should be like a pit stop. It's like yeah. you should go to, because I saw um, Jasmine Paris, for instance, in the spine or or a couple of other potential winners of, of the spine race. And I was amazed when they arrived to the checkpoint they may spend only 15 minutes. And it was like, how? How is it possible? So I would say you can also train for that. And that's where the checklist maybe is useful. Yeah. And that's why maybe some kind of psychological strategies to say, okay, I'm just going to visualize what I'm going to do when I arrive to the checkpoint. Because also we need to consider we are humans. You may have spent the whole night, in the case of the spine, like at minus 10 degrees, it's a snowing, uh, it's completely dark because in, in January, the amount of light we've got is less than eight hours. 
just constantly talking to your own mind. And maybe what you really want to do when you arrive to the checkpoint is to have a chit chat with one of the volunteers <laughs> and you know to get a cup of tea and, and some porridge. And then you start spending extra time at the checkpoints that probably you will regret when you are close to the next checkpoint and you're very close to the to the cut of time. So my advice is, as you said, plan your stops properly and try to be as much efficient as possible in, in these ways. Like I would say probably the, the checkpoint was one thing that changed my life when I saw one of the <laughs> athletes, from, not, not even from the top, just probably from the back of the peloton, that he opened his suitcase and he has a list of day one, day two, day three, checkpoint one, checkpoint two, checkpoint three. I said, cut off. It's like, perfect. Well, and people have the worst sense of how long they spend in aid stations because if you talk to them afterwards, they're like, oh, I was only there for two minutes when in reality they were actually there for 20 minutes. <laughs> okay. I want to, I want to kind of wrap this up a little bit here. And I'm wondering if there is if there's any big rocks of advice, like one or two things that you've observed or that you have seen kind of teased out in the literature that people can do to either prepare for or combat sleep deprivation in longer ultras, greater than 100 mile ultras. What what would that be? What were, what are the things that any listener out there, regardless of where they kind of sit in the pack, what can they do to 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 get themselves prepared for these things? I think um, well, because you mentioned it when you did the interview with Kiara, like sleep deprivation training is something that at the moment we cannot advise. We we don't have a prescription for it because we had only hair case study which one person right. in one specific race, but we need to do more research. And we're going to go back to a non-scientific uh, chat, but uh, as well as Kiara and you during Tordes Young, you had conversation with athletes. We had, because actually when I listened to Kiara's interview, I said, yeah, I know that story. I know where is it coming from because we were at the, having a coffee and, and, and some person like on the other side was like, oh, I did uh, this and yeah, yeah. It's like, I used to train with, with uh, no sleep. I, I used to, uh, two months before the event, I used to do some training with no sleep. And actually also I, I, I heard, maybe you already know it, but I have heard the same thing with people doing expeditions. It's like yeah. they were training not to sleep, just to do the summit. And that was the, the, the start of, of this uh, sleep deprivation thingy of can we train to not sleep? But I'm afraid that the answer from the scientific point is like, we still don't know. And we know from, from Kiara and from other researchers that has written a letter saying that actually this could be dangerous. And then probably Kiara and Samuel will answer back with, with their, their views is, I would like to, to see where is it going in terms of we should do like a randomized control trial uh, research uh, with the sleep deprivation training but um, if I had to give an advice to someone is like sleep banking that's going to be the most useful part for the first night and the second day I would say plan your caffeine well it's like don't be silly and have like a crazy amount of caffeine before going to bed in this case 
avoid avoid the negative with that yeah, exactly. is, is what you're no, getting we, at yeah again it's like i can tell you we had some athlete that he was struggling to finish that night he put uh, two to four chewing gums <laughs> two hours before arriving to the checkpoint he had to sleep i can't remember maybe three to four hours and he couldn't sleep and when he woke up he looked at me and said i couldn't sleep he's like of course then <laughs> why you stay four hours in bed just looking at the ceiling it's like just come outside uh, ask me and then maybe we can have another strategy so from 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 research um, yeah i would say the abc would be a sleep uh, extension before the event plan your caffeine and also it's like plan your sleep based on your race uh, strategy yeah i i think that that's really reasonable people are going to want a very specific answer sleep two hours per night between two and 4 a.m or something like that but the reality is is on the intervention side we know that sleep sleep banking works so that's an intervention you can absolutely uh uh you can absolutely perform we know that caffeine works it's very well studied we know we know a reasonable amount about the dose response and if you plan it on a schedule that's a reasonable way to get the ergogenic and alertness effects as well as try to avoid it interfering with your sleep like your story your story mentioned mm-hmm. and then have some semblance of how long the race is going to take you and use that to design your sleep schedule, not the other way around, not trying to come up. And this is what I was trying to pin you down on, which is kind of unfair. But if you have a total duration, I think that's the, that's the first kind of the first place to start. And have another plan. It's like have the best, uh, have a plan B. And if you are crazy enough, plan C, plan D is like, okay, what happens if uh, because I'm always recalling my, my experiences. Like, it happened to us. We estimate, like, oh, this athlete is going to take him eight hours to cover this section. And then all of a sudden, he was hit by fatigue. So and hard. It yeah, took him so 12 hard. hours. And, you know, for me as a coach and, and as a researcher, it's like, I must be ready. Maybe I'm a, maybe I'm an overthinker. I'm always like, okay, what if? I'm, I know that's pretty bad, but it's the way I am. But uh, when, when it works, sometimes I feel proud. It's like, okay maybe being an overthinker sometimes is good yeah well it's it i mean you have a gazillion n of ones but like i said like i said from the onset of this podcast we have to use research and what we know about uh how sleep restriction works and how sleep banking works and things like that to design the best to really design the best plans we can't just wing it right we have to use observation and evidence that we draw in either observational studies or randomized control trials or, or, or whatever the intervention is or whatever the study is, we have to use that to design best practices. Otherwise, everybody's just guessing. And if you get it right, you're just lucky. <laughs> yeah. And also, it's going to sound like very, very silly, but what we know is like the fastest runners, they sleep less, so just run fast. I <laughs> love it. That's a great place to end. Just run faster. Porsche, coach, I, appreciate I, I your think t- as a coach, it's, it's a very good advice to tell your athletes. It's like, don't moan about sleep. Just go fast. Well, but here's the, I mean, from a practical perspective, this is why I have a, so, so I'm going off on a tangent here, so buckle up. This is why I have a hard time encouraging athletes to do sleep restriction training 
like I talked about with with Chiara, is and just for the people who didn't listen to that podcast, that would be intentionally withholding sleep for like one night a week in a very deliberate fashion or just sleeping for two hours or something like that in order to gain some sort of uh, physiological and or psychological advantage dur- during the race. The reason I have such a hard time recommending that to athletes is that it's very difficult in most circumstances to not have that impact the training. And the training is what helps you go faster down the trails, as as you were just mentioning. So I'm not I'm not completely ruling that out as an intervention, but that's why I have a hard time prescribing it, is because it's very difficult in most cases to have it not impact the training. Although that's counter to the case study that, that we went over, but anyway, that's a, that's another <laughs> that's a, a totally another topic. If you ask me as an athlete, like aiming to do. Tordes Jans in the future. Uh, that's my personal opinion. It's not my expertise. My personal opinion is I should try because I want to experience and I want to yeah. face the challenge of checking my GPS at 3 a.m. in the morning with no sleep at all. But we cannot advise people to do that. Yeah, that's so, it's so tricky. So for, tricky. Me, for me, it's logical. It's, it's, um, okay, we go back to the marathon training, but you need some feedback of what's going to happen we're not saying you should do it every week for one month or something like that but i would say the same thing you would recommend your athletes to do some night training because they need to experience how is running in the mountains at 3 a.m in the morning with a torch light i would say it's very logical to say that you should do some training in a sleep-deprived state we're not saying 48 hours with no sleep, but yeah, I know I'm, I know it's controversial. I know it's a it's well, a double-edged sword in this case. Personally, I'm I'm more likely to prescribe something like that on a very infrequent basis. So maybe once every eight weeks or something like that, or which amounts to just a small handful of times you're doing an overnight run or you're doing something in a sleep restricted or sleep sleep deprived state I, I outside of that experience that you just mentioned i need to check my gps watch at 4 in the morning i need to like learn how to like deal with brain fog uh, th- there's an absolute advantage to that i what what i struggle with is is there some sort of material improvement in, in the athlete from a physiological perspective, like, is there an adaptive response, which is what we talk about in physiology, right? Is there an adaptive response? Are you bigger, stronger, faster, can jump higher and things like that to doing that sleep, uh, re- to doing that sleep restrictive or sleep deprivation bout? That's what I think we all kind of struggle with is, is there an actual adaptive response? And the, the, the question is out there. Certainly there's an experiential response, right? You just know how to handle the experience and that's, that's worthwhile, but who knows if there's any adaptation that goes along with it. And so we'll debate it and research it further, right? That's why we got good people like you. The answer is we don't know yet, but yeah. I make an emphasis on yet. It's like yeah. we, we yeah. will work on it because we know is a question that we all want to answer. I have to say that also part of my, of my, of my PhD we took like um, a very, what we said, like natural approach for Tordes Jans. It's like we've got a group of, of soldiers 
And we did some uh, sleep deprivation protocol, but it was not sleep deprivation training. The main reason why I mentioned this is because uh, Guillaume Millet, that was the external examiner, was actually making that point. And we argue about, is this kind of a sleep deprivation training? And I explained it to him. And, our, and, and that's a very honest answer. Is like, we didn't plan it as a sleep deprivation training. We plan it as we, as if we were someone who wants to prepare a tortoise jams. I said, okay, why do I do if I want to prepare tortoise jams? I may do one, two ultra marathons longer than 100 miles, and they will for sure be races where you sleep as less as possible. Yeah. And the, the, the reason why I mentioned this is because we test them pre and post. So before, and we tested them on a period of, four, of 14 weeks and we develop a protocol where you come to the lab with norm, after normal sleep, you run the, until exhaustion. And then you don't sleep on that day, you are controlled 24 seven. And then on the following morning, so under 24 hours of sleep deprivation, we do exactly the same test and we calculate the difference between performances. And then we do that after a period of 14 weeks where you have been doing your normal training for tortoise jumps and you may have done like a, um, two races of 100 kilometers or one recognition of 100 kilometers. Yeah. Because our hypothesis was, okay, that's what the people usually do, which we don't know, but we, we it was our hypothesis. It's like, okay, that's why that's how people may prepare tortoise jumps. We didn't find an improvement in, in sleep deprivation tolerance, let's say in the decrease of, of, of performance. But uh, it's still on the same, I would say, is first of all, it's not a sleep deprivation training as something you plan, but I guess is uh, on the same direction of Kiara's case study in the sense of we need to do proper yeah. research in the field like a yeah. randomized control trial to see whether it may not work as some researchers proposed or it may work as our research group proposed. Just for your listeners, the science is like science is a constant fight and it's not uh, that we are better than the others or vice versa. It's like, no, we all are on the <laughs> same boat. It's like we want to answer a question. And if the question is, no, this doesn't work, I would say first perfect yeah we we answer a question i'll be the first person if you start to tease out some sort of sleep deprivation training that shows a clear cause and effect in terms of the sleep deprivation tolerance that somebody can that that, that somebody can actually experience i'll be the first person to throw that intervention in the mix of my athletes training and obviously balance it with everything else that's going on but i think that we don't know yet is a very important Part, you made, you made a very week. good point. It's like the the impact of a sleep deprivation training on, on, on at the end of the right. story. We, we are not professional athletes. You've got a job. You've got a family. Uh, it's not it's not easy not to get your normal schedule or your normal routine impacted by that. It's the same. Yeah. I guess it's um, because that's probably my question for you. Is like I guess it's the same rationale about the back to back runs on the weekends. To do like longer, yeah. to do like long events. It's like some people just said, "Oh no, on the weekend you should do like 50 miles on Saturday and then 50 miles on Sunday." It's like, what is the impact on your? 
what, what is the cost of that type of training? What's the trade-off, right? Yeah, you always, yeah. when I, whenever you have a, I could do A or I could do B, right? Or A, more, more, more commonly, what we're evaluating from a coaching perspective is how much impact you can get from intervention A versus how much does it cost if you were to do intervention B. And you, and, and once again, you've got an unlimited number of arrows in your, tra- in your training quiver to, to, to perform. You got intervals, you got sleep deprivation training, you got volume and all this other stuff. You have to decide what combination of all those is going to impact the athlete positively the most. And then how do those things actually affect the run of show, you know, later down the road. So you've got two questions, right? D- does the sleep deprivation training actually work? Does it improve people's sleep deprivation tolerance? And then the second question, this is probably the harder one, is what is the cost and how does that cost impact another area that you could improve with that particular athlete? So it's it's this is always the case whenever we look at these very specific interventions is how much is the impact and then what is the cost rolling down the line? But that's going to be a conversation for another time. Borja, I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. This is one of those things where we could pick each other's brain for forever. And I probably will do so if I ever uh, find myself in a pickle with an athlete that's that's dealing with sleep deprivation issues. Um, But I appreciate the work that you do. Where can athletes find you or where can they learn more about the research that you're doing? I would say that as soon as the thesis is uh, available, which should be no later than September, I would say, considering that the summer, maybe the universities are closed. But actually, I must admit the comments this Friday. So it may take like less than a month. <laughs> You're under the say. gun. <laughs> yeah, but that's, 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 well, that's a, a different story. But yeah, no, but um, I will probably send you an email with a thesis. I would, Perfect. Well, I mean, it, it all, also the university, usually the PhD thesis are available and uh, you know you can post the link and you will find there like all the bits and bobs of, of all the different studies we do with the numbers and I, I feel sorry because I could have prepared everything like in a better way telling you okay in this check when this left this amount of time um yeah it has been a pleasure it's part of the it's, it's one of the things that for me as a researcher I want to make an emphasis is like it's very important for us to to explain what we do and uh, for me personally, any opportunity I've got to engage with a, a podcast or an audience is like, I, I love to answer questions and I, we could chat forever. Um, yeah, the, the other place where you can find me probably is on Twitter. You can uh, Perfect. place it I'll link- because if, if I have to spell it, it may be a bit messy. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, then you can find me also on the university. You've got my email. and. I may, it may take a while to, to, to respond sometimes because I'm quite busy, but I would say it's part of my role as a researcher to answer questions. So if any of your listeners may have like further questions about anything in terms of sleep deprivation and ultra or particularly ultra events, I'm more than available. 
No, you're leaving the door open, man. You might get flooded after this podcast. I, I appreciate you and appreciate what you do, man. Um, I'll leave links in the show notes to everything that you just mentioned. And uh, like I said, this is a really fascinating area. And I hope we continue to uncover more and more about it through yeah. efforts, uh, through people. I have to make yourself. a disclosure. Like, I'm not coaching anymore. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not open to coaching offers. I you're, to, to, you're busy enough. Yeah. <laughs> I love coaching. It was my background. It was the start of the story for me. And um, I, in a way, I miss it a bit. But um, it's, uh, it's very complicated at, at, this, at this point. But um, I really appreciate that coaches that get into science because uh, it, it sounds like a bit sad, but we don't know so many. We don't know anything. That's my, my take-home <laughs> message. Yeah, training is a black true. box. The way I see training is a black box. We have inputs, which is the training, and we have the output, which is the performance. But what is happening in the middle, we don't know. It's a black box. Yeah, so, yeah exactly. That's a great place to leave it, man. That's a great place to leave it. I appreciate it. We're going to let you go, Borgia. And uh, like I said, links to everything will be in the show notes, man. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and also inviting Chiara and probably on behalf of Samuele also, thanks for letting us explain a bit what we do in our we'll get, lab. We'll get, Sam, we'll get Sam on the podcast eventually. Hopefully I'll move up the ranks enough to, to, get, to have him on. <laughs> I, will, I will mention it to him the next time I, I will see him. That will be tomorrow. So there, there will, we go. Perfect. I will just mention it so we can make a bit of pressure. To see perfect it. because he's perfect. he's also i mean we learn from him Kiara and me is like the, the way we are is is a bit of a, our supervisors views uh, on and we have seen him like involving in seminars in conferences and that's why we, we need to push him to be in the podcast <laughs> <laughs> all right borgia we'll leave it at that man appreciate it my pleasure all right folks there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Borgia for coming on the podcast today. This is always a really tricky topic because we want to give athletes very specific advice and advice that's based in the research. And there's just not a whole heck of a lot of it out there, as we alluded to multiple times during the podcast. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends share it with your training partners. As always, this podcast is brought to you without sponsors, without any sort of endorsements. And that's so we can keep the podcast and the advice that the podcast contains as unadulterated as possible. You always get my honest opinion on anything that is out there, whether it's a supplement or an intervention. And sharing this podcast with your friends and your training partners helps spread the message and spread the word and spread the love that this podcast contains. That is it for today. And as always, folks, we will see you out on the trails.